kind of didn't panic initially. Um, but within, I'm going to say seconds, because it wasn't even minutes. It was suddenly seconds and people started to, you know, move or run or, you know, and then a friend of mine appeared in front of me and said, I have your coat and your bag, we're going. Right. So I said, OK. But when we again, we made our way over to the front door, which was like it wasn't far away. But already there was a bottleneck. There was a group of people. So the door was that size. Right. So the group of people was that size trying to get out this door. And I got pushed back against the wall. At this stage, the ceilings on fire, the the noise of the fire. I remember standing there and I just looked and thought, I'm not going to get out that way. And I don't know another way out. I did not know where the other exits were. And I just thought for a couple of seconds, OK, this is probably it. This is Linda Bishop from Coolock in Dublin, talking about the last night of the Stardust, a club she used to go to a lot. It was one of the biggest nightclubs in Dublin and it was hugely popular during the three short years that it was open. Some of the biggest bands of the day played there, like the Specials. It didn't just cater for specific groups, like punks or glam rockers or fans of disco or new wave. It was somewhere where anyone could go, and it was the place to go for people in their late teens and early 20s. But all of this isn't what you've heard about it. In the early hours of Valentine's Day 1981, a fire ripped through the club in a matter of minutes. More than 800 young people had gone there for a disco dancing competition in the venue that night. 48 of them died. 214 were injured. Four decades on, there is still a lot we don't know about the Stardust, the worst fire disaster in the history of the state. What caused it? Was it preventable? And how did the Irish state get the response to it so wrong? After 38 years, people still have questions. Now, there's a chance they may finally get answers. In September, the Attorney General announced that there will be new inquests into the 48 deaths. It's not before time. The fire tore an entire community apart. Many of those there that night were young, working-class Dubliners from the local area. People went with friends they had grown up with, people they had known since they were children. Catherine and Susan Darling were there that night. The sisters had grown up in Coolock, just half an hour walk down to the Stardust, and spent their childhood in the local area. And then we'd go to Lambs out in Donnerby. Yeah, we'd be up, up at five in the five morning. morning. Walk to Rohini for the train. And you'd go out to Lambs, you'd spend your day out in Lambs. You might earn, maybe, if you were a really good picker, you'd earn £3 at the time, which was a lot of money. You probably don't even know what Lambs is, do you? Lambs no, is like a fruit a fruit picking fruit place picking. out in Donabay. So we used to walk to Rohini, get the train, then get the train to Donabay out, and then you had about a mile to walk <laughs> from the train station Already from bed again, up to the yoke, and then you'd done all your picking, your fruit picking during the day. You'd pick like six big punnets of strawberries and you'd get maybe 32 pence for picking them. It was just slave labour at the time. But we loved it because it was your own money then again, you know. But you, don't, you were always making money. We were always doing something. Do you know what I mean? And like, that's just, that was our child. We had a great child, great upbringing around here. Catherine and Susan were typical of young people in Ireland growing up in the 1970s and 80s. There wasn't a lot of money to go around and you'd do what you could to earn a few bob. If you were in your mid to late teens, it's likely you'd have to go out and try get a job as early as possible. And that wasn't easy. When you were given the chance to go enjoy yourself, 
you'd jump at it. But then when we got to the age of like say 14, the stardust opened up, up up there. So like then we dressed up high heels, makeup and a lot then, and then we were allowed into the stardust because we looked 18. And uh, we've been going to the stardust since we were 14 years old. Well, I was 15, she was 14 and she was 14, you know? So we've been going to that stardust since we were, uh, me 15 and them two 14. So what you know? was the place to be, was it? It was yeah. the place yeah, to be. It was the yeah. best place you know? around. Yeah. It was. They had huge, yeah, a huge places, all the top entertainments on. So kind of, we, you, went to, you went to the disco every week, but then maybe that was a Friday, there could be Saturday night, there could have been the stylistics was on or different bands and you know, you went to see them then. Now, as I say, we were getting in from, we were 14, and sometimes we went up and we wouldn't be allowed in. You'd be stopped, because they'd know you were underage. The Darlings were growing up in an Ireland that was far different to the one we know today. The country's economy was on its knees in the latter part of the 70s, and it wasn't looking much better heading into the 80s. As we entered the new decade, the leader of the country wanted to play it straight with the public. Good evening. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. And the picture I have to paint is not, unfortunately, a very cheerful one. The figures which are just now becoming available to us show one thing very clearly. As a community, we are living way beyond our means. I don't mean that everyone in the community is living too well. Clearly many are not, and have barely enough to get by. But taking us all together, we have been living at a rate which is simply not justified by the amount of goods and services we are producing. Charles Hawhey's televised address to the nation on the evening of the 9th of January 1980 set the tone for the rest of the decade. What he said would later turn out to be ironic when the extent and the means of his wealth was revealed. Still, it was true to say that Ireland was a poor country back then long before the Celtic Tiger transformed the economy in the 1990s. It, it's hard for me to describe it because it, if I can take you back uh, maybe, first of all, to the 70s. Charlie Board joined RTE in the mid-70s and was one of the leading voices on the national broadcaster for the next three decades. He covered some of the biggest stories of that time, including the Stardust Fire. I mean, there were, I just, one image I always have in my head, there were huge tax marches in, in Dublin. I mean, so many people were out on, on the streets of Dublin. I mean, the, the, the Ireland of the 70s and the 80s, yeah, it was dominated, if you like, by um, Charlie Hawhey, by politics, by a whole lot of elections. You know also there was the housing, people were being moved, had been moved out of the, uh, of the old tenement areas of Dublin into areas like Dunamead and, uh, and Artane and all around those areas. So... And I don't know, it's, it's, you know, Dublin of the 80s, it's, it's, you know, we are living in a, in a much better world now. But that, for me, is, is, is absolutely no doubt about that. We're living in, in a much better world. More than 100,000 people were unemployed across the country at that time. And the problem was particularly bad in working class areas of North Dublin. We're talking here about areas like Artane, Coolock, Donny Kearney, Eden Moore. Beaumont. These were relatively new areas as, from the 1950s onwards, the Irish government developed new suburbs around Dublin to house its population and move them out of the packed city centre. Tenements in the city were replaced with two-up, two-down terraced housing, row after row after row of them in areas around Dublin. There wasn't a lot of money to go around, with good jobs scarce, 
low numbers going to university and high numbers leaving the country. Despite all that, the sense of community was strong. Everyone was in the same boat. They supported each other. Photojournalist Eamon Farrell moved to Dublin at a young age and grew up in one of these suburbs. There was a certain level of poverty, but you didn't know you were poor because everybody was the same, more or less, or everybody within your area was the same, okay? And in the fingers that I was brought up in, most of the people were people who came up from the countryside to get jobs in Dublin. They were all, you know, honourable people. They all wanted to educate their families. They all wanted to do better for themselves. Many young people in the 1980s emigrated to the US or Britain in search of better opportunities. Others stayed at home. All many of them wanted to do was make some money during the week and then go enjoy themselves at the weekend. Linda Bishop lived with her family on McCroon Road in Coolock. She was like thousands of others who grew up fast in their teens. My sisters were very studious. Uh, even in school, the, the teachers used to say, I don't believe these are sisters. But uh, I was always the rebel. I was always the one on the mitch, always, you know, not doing homework <laughs> and not doing exams. That was me. Straight into work when I was 15. I worked in town. I worked in a knitwear factory in Foley Street. Loved it. Had worked there for a couple of years. And then I worked in a place called Concealy Farms. That's on the way out to Malahide. And there was loads of people who worked out there. One of the girls died in the fire. And uh, but loads of them, like another girl, her brother died. So there was loads of people involved that night who, you know, we would have all went from work. You know what I mean? You'd, you'd go to the Camelot or the Clare Manor, which was where Clare Hall is. And uh, there were two hotels, kind of dreadful crap places. You wouldn't go near them now. But uh, that was what there was. And then the Stardust. So we'd go to Stardust as well. Would be kind of every Friday night, is it all build up? Every Friday yeah. night, Saturday night, if you still had the money, Sunday night. You know, there was always something on and it was always great crack. So it was always, yeah, it was always a gang going. So always someone going to the Stardust. Yeah. Of course, I had to beg, beg my parents to let me go, especially on the late nights, you know. But um, I just did. I just kept pleading with them and annoying them until I was allowed to go. Because I was 17 when I started going. And um, I turned 18 in the January and then the fire was in the February. So I was only gone 18. The Stardust Club Linda just mentioned is something most people in Ireland know about. Maybe only in passing. Or maybe they remember it vividly. It was home to dancing, disco competitions and romances. It gave people in their late teens and early 20s a chance to let their hair down. It gave them a bit of freedom. These people can all remember going to the Stardust back then. Well, it probably was. It was the biggest show on their side, really, the Stardust. And he used to have to wear a short toy down in there. And there was one night I went up and um, I had an old toy with me. And it's just a funny bit of area now. And there was a bit of a ribbon hanging down off the, the canopy. And I went out of the car, I took the bit of ribbon off the other, put it on myself. He said, you're very quick. I said, I got one off my mate, like, you know. <laughs> he said, come on, man, he says. <laughs> but uh, it was, yeah, it was a great, great bit of crack there, like, you know. It was a popular place, a really good, like, you know what I mean? Everywhere they came, yeah. It was, it was the new... It'll just go on the same more or less, you know. Like there's a cabaret on in the lantern rooms or the silver spawn you go there. That was the sister pub at the Stardust. And then there was the old Sheelan as well. Like if there was something going on, a function going on, we'd say we go to the old Sheelan or the Camelot or the Clare Manor. They were all the places, but the Stardust was the biggest event. It was the biggest, like function room and cabaret and like everything that was could be held down there was held down there. So like that was a big thing at the time. But I remember one time we went to it was my friend that used to go with me, uh, Karen, and she was I think it was eighteen, 
And of course, we brought the cake and all up to the lantern rooms and said it was our 21st. And this particular bouncer was happened to be on the door. We brought more of a slice of cake and everything. And we were saying, that's grand, we'll be all right for next week now because he knows you were 20. Well, he thinks you were 21. We said it was our 21st. So we went up to the next week. He was on the door. We said, come on, we'll be all right. We gave him the cake and all last week. And we walked up to him and he went, no, girls, not tonight. And I said, what do you mean, not tonight? We're 21. No. I said, she was 21 last week. She had her 21st there. He said, she might have had a birthday here last week, but it wasn't that 24 she had. You know, so he stopped us. So we go back down to the gate and wait till he goes and then back up again. But yeah, we had good nights up there. The Stardust was the night out for so many people in the area. And it came at a time when an awful lot of culture, particularly Dublin culture, was changing. Declan Meehan was a young DJ back then. At the beginning of the 1980s, he was fresh off a stint presenting The Breakfast Show on a new radio station aimed at the younger generation, 2FM. You have to remember, in Ireland, people didn't tour, you know. We, did, we didn't get the big names. You have a great choice now where you see who's on at the point or who's on a Vicar Street or whatever, and Olympia, and so much choice. Then nobody came to Ireland. You know, we, had, we got Boney M, I think, in 1979, you know, that was a big thing to get. It's it starting to loosen up in, in the early 80s. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel came to the RDS, Steve Miller Band, but it was very bereft. But then you get people like maybe the specials or somebody going to, you know, the Stardust. It would be somebody of that calibre. It would be, they wouldn't be, you know, of the wide mums and dads like them and the whole generations like them. It would be the particular people who liked acts like that uh, would go to the smaller places. Um, we'll say like Specials or Clash or whatever um, would go to Stardust. The electronic sounds of the 80s hadn't taken hold quite yet. And the disco sounds that dominated the late 70s were still everywhere in popular culture. They were on radio stations every day. They were in films. They were in the clothes that people wore. The the big explosion was 1978 when disco came in from America and there was Saturday Night Fever in Greece. And I think everybody who had a copy of the double album, Saturday Night Fever, was a DJ because there were so many hits on it. And there were so many disco records that had come in. And as long as you had a load of disco records... And then you could contrast that with some of the, say, new wave type of type of music that was there, sort of harder, I don't know, the Clash or Jam or uh, a bit of Madness or whatever, and you could contrast it with that. But, you know, there was dance music that was basically in the charts. People played the charts at the time. There was no separate uh, playlist of dance music. Declan grew up in Santry, one of the growing suburbs in North Dublin. It's close enough to Artane, and the night of the 13th of February 1981 stands out in his mind. And uh, I think the night of the disaster, I mean, I was talking to Danny Hughes about it and he was he was there playing records. He lost one of the guys who was working for him. Really? Yeah, because uh, he put him on basically when he was taking a break and he said, I'm taking a break, I'll be back to you. The poor guy, he was, was caught in the fire. But that night, I was out that night um, somewhere in town or whatever. And where I lived, backs on to the Omni Centre in Santry and there was no motorway bypass in those days. Every bit of traffic to the airport and beyond had to come up by the Swords Road. And so you pass by, it wasn't the Omni Centre at the time, but we were basically looking out onto that main road and all night the ambulances were going up and down on fire brigades, just sirens non-stop. 
that night and just say, Jesus, that sounds absolutely dreadful, you know, and you only hear later on how dreadful it actually was. But we knew this is bad, you know, and um, there was no news source really to, to tell you, I wonder what that is or, you know, you'd only wait to hear somebody tell you or, you know, no mobile phones or anything. Um, but knew it was pretty bad, didn't know where it was, thought it was a plane crash at the airport or something. The night that Declan is talking about was the start of Valentine's disco. A start out as good a night as any. They danced and they drank. But as things were starting to wind down, just after 1.30am, the night spiralled. A small fire was spotted in the corner of the nightclub. Within 20 minutes, the entire nightclub was ablaze. Yvonne Graham was there that night. She'd only recently moved to Dublin from Derry in Northern Ireland. And she and four friends had gotten a job at a nursing home. But we loved Dublin. We really, really did. Um, we were having a ball in it. We we were working. We had no responsibilities. We had nothing. Like we were getting more rent. We were staying in the staff house in the Nazareth house. Uh, we we got our food and we got our lodgings. We get everything and then we got our wages. And our wages was our spending money. Although it mightn't have been much then. So we would have enjoyed uh, But we loved Dublin. Like Until that happened. Uh, and then we had to end up coming home then. Our parents came down, so they did, and took us home. <laughs> I, uh, do you know this here? I think I was only ever in it once before that, but Fanola and Sissy and Anne and our Christian would have went, but I was going with a fella down there, so I wouldn't have went up as often as what they would have, but they went up pretty often now. And Sissy was actually going with Paul Wade, the fella that was killed in the fire as well. So she was, he was buried in the mass grave. They couldn't identify him for years. I suppose everybody was on about it. Uh, everybody talked about it. Uh, so they did. So that's why that's why we went. And then there was the disco was Valentine night that night. And there was a dance competition and that on. So we all thought we would head. It was my first time ever to try Perno. So it was <laughs> my uh, it was a fellow I met that night, Richie Bennett. He died in the fire, Richie Bennett. Um, I met him that night and he introduced me to Perno, uh, Perno and Black Current. So we did, and it was lovely. And I think he, he bought me one that night in the, the other bar, you know, before we went down to the actual dance. That's what it was. Uh, that's, what, that's why we went for the dance. Uh, so it was. We just all like dancing. And, and you see, even now, it still brings everything back, even, you know, talking about it. You see, like it does, it still, do you know what I mean? Like we had, we loved with the nightmares. And like I was in tablets when I was 18. Because of it, because of the nightmares, I wasn't sleeping. I was dreaming about burned bodies, climbing up the bed, trying to get me. There's a lot we know about the Stardust, but we don't know it all. It's a lot more complicated than what you may have heard about the locked doors and the flammable materials. A narrative emerged about the cause of the fire that persisted for decades. This narrative infuriated families. It's led them down a very long road where they've been seeking the justice they feel they were denied at the time. Over the next five episodes, we will take you through the story of what happened that night, and then what came after. You'll learn about how doors were chained shut, fire exits blocked, a flawed investigation process, a near total lack of support for survivors, and a perception of bias against their working class background. You'll hear how a throwaway line from a judge changed the entire course of the investigation and how the flawed compensation process meant one man who lost two daughters in the fire received nothing at all. You'll hear how a community was told one of their own had caused the fire that killed their loved ones 
and how the flawed standards in fire safety prompted a complete step change in Ireland. You'll hear from survivors, from force responders, from journalists, all of whom still have not forgotten what happened that night. You'll hear from the families who desperately want closure over 38 years after their children went to a disco and never came home. All this time later, this is what families want. They want answers. People want to know why their children died. This is Stardust, a podcast from thejournal.ie. What do people have to remember, and, and maybe me saying this to you and to everybody, you know, that sometimes when you use, when journalists use a story, you, you say 48 people died in a fire. They're all, they've all got family and friends. That ripple effect, it spreads out. These are real people. It's not just a number. 48 is not just a number. 48 is real people and their families and their friends and that ripple effect. And we must always remember that, even going back in time, when we just talk glibly, 48 people died in a fire in 1981 in the Valentine's Night disco. We're talking about real people. We should never forget that. Next time on Stardust. When I got to the phone, all my mates and all that, you know, they're all going up to cheer me on, you know. My man and dad knew that William George were going to Stardust, but they didn't know that Marcella was. They had no idea. On the 4th of September 1980, he inspected the Silver Swan and found an exit door which was chained and locked. Do you ever step out of a... If you're out on the street and it's really cold and you step into a shop or something and it's really warm, you get that shudder. Your body kind of goes, oop, sudden change in temperature. I sat there and I got that shudder and I said, Jesus, don't tell me they're turning the heating on now. So it turns, actually it wasn't the heating, it was the first heat from the fire that I suppose I felt. Thanks for listening to episode one of Stardust. I'm Sean Murray and this podcast is produced by Nikki Ryan with executive producer Christine Bowen. Our cover art is provided by PA Images. If you like what you heard, please share with a friend or give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Episode two will be out next week. And you can find out more about this and upcoming episodes on our Twitter page, at Stardust Pod. And we'll provide any updates on the upcoming inquest there. <laughs>